Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology from Cedars-Sinai. And today, my guest is my co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Brian Lacey, professor of medicine from Mayo Jacksonville, who is on this month's podcast to discuss an article that he wrote in the red section entitled Controversies in Gastroparesis, discussing the sticky point. So Brian, thanks so much for being on the podcast this month. This is great. What an honor to be here. I'm delighted to talk about this important topic. So let's jump right in. This is a topic, of course, that's important to all of our clinicians who very frequently see gastroparesis or see symptom complexes that suggest gastroparesis. And it's often difficult to know how to approach these patients, whether we're dealing with gastroparesis or functional dyspepsia, how to test for these things, how to treat them. And so in this red section article, you address what you call 10 different controversies. And We won't have time to go through all the controversies, but I want to hit on some of the highlights. But for those who are listening, I highly recommend you take a look at this red section piece that was published in the Red Journal. It was in the March 2021 edition to read through all 10 controversies, and we'll touch on them today. So why don't we get started with definitions? What is gastroparesis? Uh, How do we define it? How do we diagnose it? So, and I like a lot of the way you frame that, Brennan. So this is controversial. However, when we think about how to define gastroparesis, it has three tenets, meaning symptoms thought to represent delayed stomach emptying, nausea, vomiting, pain, early satiety, a sense of discomfort after eating, even bloating in the absence of mechanical obstruction, which is why an upper endoscopy is required to diagnose these patients and delayed gastric emptying with hopefully a properly performed gastric emptying scan. That all makes sense. And then the question arises, okay, so when should I go down this route of performing endoscopy, conducting emptying studies. And a related question, and you can take this however you'd like, is functional dyspepsia is very, very common, certainly more common than gastroparesis. And it presents with pretty much all of the symptoms that you just described. So if I'm a clinician and I've got a patient who I think could have functional dyspepsia, and if we get into the details, functional dyspepsia has sort of two different types. There's epigastric pain syndrome or EPS, which is really marked more by pain and burning. And then there's postprandial distress syndrome or PDS, which is more marked by early satiety and symptoms of delayed gastric emptying. And I think it's more that PDS group that tends to be confused with gastroparesis. So talk us through the difference between PDS and gastroparesis and maybe some pearls of wisdom for the clinician to help figure out how to separate them. Absolutely. And this is this controversial point is that when clinicians are frequently faced with that patient with upper GI symptoms of fullness, pressure, discomfort, pain, nausea, what immediately leaps to their mind is gastroparesis. But as you nicely pointed out, gastroparesis is not that common. Maybe two to three million adult Americans. In contrast, the prevalence of functional dyspepsia is about 10% of adult Americans. That's probably 25 to 30 million patients, but clinicians don't think about that. And what helps me tease it out is really that persistent nausea and vomiting. When I think about a patient with gastroparesis, I want to hear vomiting. I want to hear a lot of nausea. In contrast, many of those other patients with 
FD, functional dyspepsia, and postprandial stress have more meal-related symptoms uh, that aren't necessarily present every day. Your gastroparesis patient, more persistent symptoms and symptoms even when they don't eat. Mm -hmm. Now, in the article, you point out that clinicians should also be on the lookout for pain. You just mentioned nausea and vomiting and pointed out that those symptoms are generally more predominant in gastroparesis patients compared to run-of-the-mill functional dyspepsia patients or PDS patients. But I think many clinicians often think of gastroparesis principally as a condition of nausea and vomiting and lose track of the fact that abdominal pain is a cardinal feature in many cases. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. And I think that's why this is sometimes confusing to clinicians because they hear the nausea and vomiting. Maybe they hear about the meal related symptoms and they're thinking gastroparesis. But what they've forgotten is that about 90% of patients with gastroparesis have pain. You would imagine it should be more common in the upper abdominal area. However, there are several good studies showing that 30 to 40% of the time it's upper abdomen, the epigastric area, but it may be mid-abdomen and even lower abdomen as well. So when you hear abdominal pain, don't forget gastroparesis as a possible culprit. Now let's talk a little bit about the test itself. So obviously before we even get to the test, clinically you're thinking, okay, does this patient have diabetes? Is this patient on a medication like an anticholinergic or an opioid that can be delaying gastric emptying? And you point out, of course, some of these historical features to look for. But you also point out that by no means is all gastroparesis related to diabetes. You know, many of the patients don't have diabetes and don't even have a clear culprit. And that's kind of, I think, where we get into this controversy is we know, when should I really test for gastroparesis and somebody doesn't have those classic features? Bring us through sort of the breakdown of etiologies, how that affects your clinical thinking. Right. And so looking at this topic carefully, we could probably list about 50 things that can cause delayed stomach emptying and symptoms consistent with gastroparesis. But what are the big offenders? So we do know that diabetes can cause this, both type 1 and type 2. But the patient I like to think about is that type 1 diabetic, long-standing disease, more than 10 years is a benchmark, oftentimes with a peripheral neuropathy, a retinopathy, and a nephropathy. That's your high-yield diabetic patient. However, that's only about 25 to 30%. The biggest group is that group we call idiopathic patients. And we all know the joke about what idiopathic means. It makes us all look kind of silly and stupid. Typically, these are women in a four-to-one women-to-man ratio. And frequently, it represents a post-viral or post-infectious process. After that, we're left with vascular disorders, not very common, radiation, prior chemotherapy, and of course, surgery. And in this day and age, it's no longer anti-reflux surgery, but it's gastric bypass surgery. In terms of the culprit viruses, I always recall, you know, VZV, CMV, HSV, are those, is that correct? Or Those are the usual ones. And don't be surprised in about a year or two from now, we start adding coronavirus to that list as well. Exactly. That's where you read my mind. That's where I was headed next. I think that's something we need to keep our eyes on very closely. Um, Just in brief with the diabetes part, is there an A1C threshold that you kind of noticed where GP starts to increase or is it kind of different in different people? You know, it is different in different people. Certainly those patients with a hemoglobin A1C greater than 10 But the other great teaching point here is don't forget high blood sugar levels affect gastric emptying scans. 
And so any good gastrocamping scan, they should be checking the blood sugar when you come in because when the levels are 350, 400 during the test, it's going to be an abnormal test just based on blood sugar levels. So that's a perfect segue because I wanted to talk about testing. And you've pointed out one of the caveats just there for conducting a proper test. And you point out in the article that although there are best practices published and widely promulgated about how to perform this test, the evidence suggests that the test is often not performed correctly. And that could lead to misdiagnosis, uh, either over or underdiagnosing, depending upon how you've conducted the test. So talk to us a little bit more about the test itself, how to interpret it, and some key points, including the one you just mentioned about how to do it right. You're an expert in data gathering. And the problem with this diagnosis is that we rely upon a test measuring stomach emptying as really the cornerstone to make that diagnosis along with symptoms and your essentially normal endoscopy. The problem is most institutions don't do this properly. We surveyed 800 uh, radiology centers across the country, and only 5% met a reasonable benchmark for doing the test properly. What does doing the test properly mean? It means doing a solid phase test, not liquids. Liquids are not helpful here. It means using the low-fat egg beater's meal. It means doing at least a four-hour scan. It means checking the blood sugar in advance. And it means asking whether the patient is on opioids or not and stopping them at least 72 hours in advance. But it's kind of embarrassing that many places, actually most places, including some good academic centers, don't do it properly. Thus, bad data in and you get a bad diagnosis going out. Yeah, even something as fundamental as the duration of the test, I, I still hear about two-hour emptying tests. I don't know how frequently that's done anymore. When I was a trainee, and I'm guessing you as well, two hours was the standard, and then it became clear that was not long enough to really catch everybody. And you know, usually we apply this 10% retention, right? If there's greater than 10% retained at four hours, that's the current standard? Correct. And unfortunately, as you pointed out, at least in the state of Florida, where I now live, a vast majority of institutions do 90-minute scans, and they all come back as abnormal because your stomach doesn't empty your meal in 90 minutes. You're going to have retained material. That's normal physiology, not abnormal. Right. Okay. So so we've gotten through a bit about the test itself. And you know, those listening, talk to your radiologists, talk to your, your colleagues and figure out what kind of test is being done and, and ask them why, if it's 90-minute test, they're not doing a four-hour test. Along these lines, I just wanted to pivot back to dyspepsia for a moment, again, thinking about very pragmatic issues. So we talked earlier about this kind of spectrum between postprandial distress syndrome and gastroparesis. Tying together our last discussion, the article points out that there is a spectrum. And even on emptying studies, you might see somebody who has between 10 and 20% retained material. And is that patient gastroparesis? And you know, the answer is, well, not technically. But we do see this in patients with functional dyspepsia who have some delayed gastric emptying, and they may be better classified as FD. My question is, is this really an artificial dichotomy, this sort of 10% threshold? I guess we got to draw it somewhere. And where did that come from? And when we look at the ACG guidelines for dyspepsia management, nowhere that I recall, I could be wrong about this, but I do not recall anything about testing with gastric emptying. And yet here we are talking about how really it's a spectrum and we might be missing these patients if we don't look for them. So that's a lot in there. You could probably do a whole podcast on just that question, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you've raised a host of issues and 
there are a couple of great teaching points. You're right. It is an artificial dichotomy. Number two, there's nothing in the ACG guidelines, uh, dyspepsia, saying that we should routinely order this test. Number three, patients who come in with these postprandial symptoms and a mild delay in gastric emptying, 10 to 20% of four hours, those are your FD patients. Treat them as a functional dyspepsia patient, not a gastroparesis patient. But that patient is very different than that patient with symptoms. And at four hours, they have 60, 70, 80% of the material retained. That's your true gastroparesis patient. And the other teaching point is, gosh, I wish we could say, hey, if you had 15% remaining or 25% or 45%, it would let us better understand the pathophysiology. It does not. And it might lead to a real change in treatment, not necessarily so. So we can't put it all together yet. Incredibly frustrating. Right. So you've hit on some key points that, again, is a great segue for kind of the next topic, which gets at treatment and the relationship with physiology. In theory, we're literally the term gastroparesis, right? A paretic or paralyzed stomach. And we think about it, at least I think about it, just as the words say, like paralyzed stomach, as if there's some magical line drawn at the pylorus and the rest of the intestinal tract is healthy and fine. One thing I think that's important is the human body doesn't know what terms we're using. It just does what it does. And very, very frequently, gastroparesis is part of a broader spectrum of dysmotility. And so that kind of gets at some of the treatment, for example, percalipride, which maybe we'll talk about in a moment, which is thought to work not just in the stomach, not just in the foregut, but across kind of the entire intestinal tract. And maybe that's why there's some effectiveness, which I just want to kind of put that aside for a moment as I riff here, but I got to, I want to kind of hone in on one particular thing, which is all right, accelerating gastric emptying, you would think would improve symptoms, right? This is gastroparesis. So if we get rid of the paresis and the gastro, doesn't that fix it? Tell us about that. And what's the latest? So I like the way you're trying to approach this logically. So The first thing is we should probably get rid of the term gastroparesis because rarely is a stomach paralyzed. Number two, the assumption is if your stomach empties slowly, if we just accelerate stomach emptying, a motor event, all your symptoms should get better. And that's been proven time and time again to basically be false. The best example is erythromycin, a great gastroprokinetic. It oftentimes makes symptoms worse, even if you normalize stomach emptying. And there are a host of other experimental agents that can normalize stomach emptying, but symptoms persist. So we think of it as a motor event, but I want all of our listeners today to start thinking, is this more of a sensory problem, not a motor problem? By just normalizing stomach emptying, don't be surprised your patients still have symptoms. So uh, just this weekend, I was at the ANMS meeting. For those who aren't familiar, ANMS stands for the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society. And it's worth taking a moment in this context to talk about the origin of that name, because ANMS used to be AMS, the American Motility Society. Years ago, there was another group called the Functional Brain Gut Group. And there were really two different almost camps in the neurogastromotility world. One that sort of said motility is important, but that can't explain it all. And the brain has a lot to do with it. Another that's really looked at this mechanistically. And then eventually AMS became ANMS to acknowledge what you just said, which is these conditions are not just conditions of dysmotility. We have to understand motility, but that may be necessary, but not sufficient to fully understand these conditions. We also have to understand the neurogastroenterology, which we're now calling these disorders 
of gut-brain interaction or DGBIs. With that background, you just told us that fixing the paresis and gastroparesis does not make people all that much better. And there are other examples of this. Moving the bowels with, let's say, PEG for an IBS patient also does not make them that much better. It might make them a little better. Uh, even something like TLESRs with GERD. If we inhibit TLESRs, you'd think that would, GERD would get better, but those studies have also kind of failed. These are just three examples where we have a target physiology uh, that we all learn about in fellowship in medical school. And when we correct that physiology or maladaptive physiology, patients don't get better that much. So what does this mean about our understanding of neurogastroenterology and motility more broadly at risk of making this a one hour long podcast? I'm smiling as you're saying this, and I'm smiling for our listeners because I think it points out how little we really know about gastroparesis. It's been extensively studied for the last 50 years. We've got a host of articles talking about drugs and medications and other things, but I think we still know so very little. And I think we need to really approach the topic of gastroparesis in terms of diagnosis, physiology, and treatment in a completely different manner. And that involves thinking about neurogastroenterology and not just a motor event. Well, that's a great summary. And I think we'll have to finish this particular part of the conversation some other time at risk of going on for another hour. But let me just, uh, let's just wrap up with some pragmatic topics, mainly around treatment. We've just talked about how we know so little, but that doesn't help the clinician that's sitting there with the patient and doesn't help say, hey, sorry, we don't know a lot about this and good luck. There's better ways to say it than that, of course. But let's talk about treatments. In this article, you do talk about procalipride and mention that it works not just in the stomach, but across the whole GI tract. And there's been maybe some signals of success with procalipride compared to many other so-called promotility agents that have been tested over the years. Tell us about that. We were fortunate to publish a very nice article from Jan Tack and colleagues from Leuven, Belgium, looking at procalipride in patients with gastroparesis. And it was a positive study of small study, uh, a crossover study showing that procalipride of 5-HT4 agonists did improve emptying and symptoms as well. Not perfect, but not bad. And I think coming back to one of your other points, Brennan, too, was the fact that many of these patients also have overlapping constipation and possibly some of those patients that we see in clinic get better with their upper GI symptoms because we're also improving their lower GI symptoms of constipation. So maybe this makes sense in that group of people. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about metoclopramide, which is sort of the mainstay of therapy for many years. We know that there are concerns about it. There always have been black box warning in 2009 from the FDA about risk of, uh, I think it was tardive dyskinesia, particularly if you use it for more than 12 weeks. So you talk about that and you talk about what is the true risk of tardive dyskinesia. Uh, that's one of the sort of controversies that you address. Can you talk to us about that? And also how effective is it? Do you use it? And if so, how? Yeah. So uh, metoclopramide has been around for a long time. In general, I think it's reasonably safe. It does have a black box warning. Don't use it for more than 12 weeks. I started a low dose, five to 10 milligrams up to three times a day. The patient most likely to get a side effect, elderly patients, women more than men, more than 12 weeks of duration. So be careful. Is it effective? It's okay. And it's probably better as an antiemetic than a prokinetic. But I think the risks of tardive dyskinesia have been way overblown. We have data from Europe at 8 million prescriptions, only about 15 to 16 people developed tardive dyskinesia. 
So in the era of percalipride, which is more recently available in the United States, been around in other countries much longer, how does that affect the calculus for whether or not to use metoclopramide as a first-line agent or at all? You know, it affects it by the fact that we do have some data supporting its use, but don't forget it won't help nausea or vomiting. So my approach in clinic is what's the most bothersome symptom? Is it nausea? Is it early satiety? Is it vomiting? Is it pain? And then target that predominant symptom. In fact, procalopride itself can cause some nausea, right? Isn't that one of its side effects initially? It can in some people, absolutely. Yeah, well, the last thing I want to address is, and this is such a rich topic, again, I really recommend our listeners to read the article. Talk about uh, botulinum toxin injection and also GPOM which are two different approaches to manipulating or affecting the pylorus itself, the sphincter itself. Are these effective? Should we be recommending this to our calcitrin patients? Yeah. And so again, the hypothesis here is that delayed stomach emptying with its accompanying symptoms are all based on pyloric dysfunction. And that actually goes back nearly 40 years to some very interesting, but very small studies by Mike Kamler and colleagues at Mayo Rochester. That said, pyloric dysfunction is likely not the culprit in most patients with gastroparesis. However, in some patients, Botox helps generally the diabetics, not the idiopathics. But if it doesn't help after the first injection, don't do it again. Approach GPOM cautiously. It's exciting. It's innovative. It's creative. Advanced endoscopists love to do it, but we really don't know who the best patient is and we have no sham controlled studies. So approach cautiously. And finally, what happened to the gastric pacemakers? They're still around. And for the Mm -hmm. patient who has longstanding diabetes, persistent nausea and vomiting, not on opioids, it has been shown to help nausea and vomiting, but does not change gastric emptying. Pointing out once again, is this more of a neurogastroenterology problem? Well, that was a whirlwind tour of gastroparesis. And I have to say, I always enjoy talking with you about GI in general, but this was a particularly fun and engaging conversation. And to me, one of the most action-packed discussions about gastroparesis I've ever been a part of. So I hope that our listeners enjoyed it as well and can take away a few pearls of wisdom for the clinic. And for our researchers, we've identified a wide variety of areas that clearly need more work and investigation. And we hope that when you do that work, you submit it uh, right back to the American Journal of Gastroenterology. On behalf of my co-editor-in-chief, Brian Lacey, and guests today, along with our entire uh, group of outstanding associate editors, my pleasure to have hosted you today, Brian. Thank you so much. Until next time, be safe and be well. Thank you. Thank you.